Well, good morning, everyone. Could we just begin with a Merry Christmas to get a little life in here? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Uh, it's so fun that we are just about a week out. Uh, I'm sure all of you are in the middle of craziness, uh, whether it's work crazy or it's arranging for travel plans crazy or it's just Christmas crazy. But this morning, I'm so excited to turn with you to this beautiful passage in the book of Isaiah to reflect on these names we discovered. But in order to dive a little bit deeper into this, uh, I wanted to first take you back to the book of Isaiah, okay? So there's, in the Bible, New Testament, you've got the Gospels, all these letters by Paul, other things about the church. Then the Old Testament, you have these huge sweeping books that cover almost all of Israel's history. And one of the biggest ones, if you've ever made the mistake of trying to work your way through the Bible and like, I'm gonna start with a book and pick one and start reading it. I once, uh, when I was in high school, had a mentor who said, let's read through a book of the Bible together. And I said, I really wanna read through Isaiah. 66 chapters in Isaiah. This is a solid multi-month commitment to even open up this book. So this morning, I want to give you just a little bit of context so that we can dive deeper into this. The most important thing to know about Isaiah is that Isaiah was a prophet operating in the royal court. Okay, so he's down in the country of Judah, where Jerusalem is the capital. There in Jerusalem is a king. The current king of Isaiah's time is Ahaz. Everybody say Ahaz with me. Ahaz. There you go. You're learning. This is great. And Ahaz was not a great king. If you know your kings of Judah history, Ahaz was a bit of a dud. So Isaiah is trying to bring the word of God to Ahaz, but there are huge, huge pressures that Ahaz is facing. I want to give you a map we're off to a great start. There's going to be a map on the screen. This is so much fun. I know the Bible nerds out there are like, yes, we've been waiting for this. Okay, so here's a map. And you'll notice down at the bottom, that small little brown square, that cube almost in present day Israel is where the nation of Judah operated. So this is where Isaiah's world was. Isaiah's here in this royal court. And if you look down to the bottom left of this screen, you'll notice Egypt is right there on the border of Israel. Now, there's actually a huge desert between Egypt and Israel that most of the time kept Israel safe from the monolith force that was Egypt. But uh, just keep in your mind, Egypt is clearly one of the most powerful global empires in the ancient world. They built pyramids, they built sphinxes, they had pharaohs. And Egypt was always knocking on Israel's door because Egypt knew if they could control Israel then they could have access to trade with all of the world. So Egypt's always there. Egypt's always on Israel's mind. Egypt's always knocking. But in the days of Isaiah, there was an even greater looming threat that would become the first global empire. This is the first nation that took up so much territory that they began to make claims that they literally controlled all of the world. And it's the, the nation of Assyria. Now, again... Uh, the, the Assyrians were not uh, known for being a very nice people. In fact, the Assyrians had what was arguably a brilliant technological revolution that allowed them to do this in the ancient world. Because think, think with me. These, these are just people walking around with spheres. They have no cars. They have no tanks. They have no planes. How does Assyria control all of that green spreading map on the world? Well, Assyria had a plan where Assyria would show up to any of these different nations, so to the Hittites, to Aram, and to Syria, and they would 
focus on one nation and conquer it. So they would just focus on the Hittites and they'd conquer the Hittites. And then they would uproot the Hittites. So they'd force the Hittites to become slaves. They'd migrate them across their empire and then they'd dump them in a new foreign land. And they realized, again, arguably brilliantly, that if you disrupted people this uh, extravagantly, what was going to happen is the Hittites would be so disoriented, would be so confused, would be so broken as a people that they would never be able to rebel and revolt against your empire that now controlled them. You would be their safety in the new land that you found themselves. Um, if you go to the British Museum in London, uh, there is a massive exhibit to the Assyrians. And as you walk through these walls, you see horrific, brutal scenes that the Assyrians would plaster all over the cities they conquered, uh, including down in the kingdom of Israel. And these scenes were just to tell the people they conquered, we did this to you before, and we'll do this to you again if you dare to rebel against us. And so the reason why I put this map on the screen is that you'll notice Isaiah is living in the 700s, and literally in Isaiah's lifetime, Assyria goes from that small little purple circle to now becoming this green empire. Assyria has expanded in the course of 40 years, and you'll notice that in those 40 years, they took Samaria, which was technically in the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were knocking on Jerusalem's door. You see that little green swath? Suddenly, uh, you start to realize why Ahaz might be feeling a little bit stressed in Isaiah's day, and why when Isaiah's saying things like, trust in the Lord, the Lord is your God. Uh, Ahaz might be saying, Isaiah, do you see the Assyrians? Like, do you see what I'm working with? Do you see what's looming down on me? And so for this reason, this is why, just all that context, background to set you up. This is why this passage that we're looking at in Isaiah is so remarkable. I think that gives a little more context for why when Isaiah spoke these words, it had so much weight to it. In fact, I hope by giving just a little picture of how real this scenario was that Isaiah was speaking into, you can feel just a little bit of the realness that this word still has for us today. Um, I couldn't help but think as I was staring at this map. Sorry, I'll go back to the map. I'm not done with the map. Give me just a few more minutes with the map. Um, I couldn't help but think as I was staring at this map. You know, the conflict in the Middle East right now uh, between Israel and Palestine just has drawn, I think, global attention to this highly contested, not too dissimilar, stressful, contested, nations looming over nations, complex geopolitics, struggling with what God has to do with all of this today. And if that's true over in Israel, it certainly can also be true for our own lives here in the United States where we continue to have all of the divisiveness, the political struggles, the big picture questions around all the changing world we find around us, and us wondering this Christmas, what does God have to say to us? So with all that, I now want to take you to this passage uh, that's the heartbeat of the series we're doing at Christmas. This is Isaiah 9-6. You've probably heard this verse at some point before. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So just slow down with this for a second, and again, try to get your imagination back into Isaiah's world. What's happening in Isaiah is that as Isaiah is speaking to the royal court, the people are getting really desperate that Assyria is going to take over. And so 
Isaiah begins to offer more and more concrete signs to Ahaz and to all of the people of Judah to say, God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned us. God is who we should be looking to for our salvation. And so if you go through Isaiah, again, it's a, it's a long task, I realize. Um, there are actually three children that are mentioned. This is kind of interesting. I was uh, stumbling around in this this week. There's a child mentioned in Isaiah 7, uh, and most scholars think that that child that Isaiah mentions in chapter 7 is probably the son that Ahaz has, uh, whose name is Hezekiah. Ahaz is going to have a son during the time of Isaiah when Assyria is looming down. And if, again, you dug around in the kings of Judah before, Hezekiah is a completely different picture to Ahaz. Hezekiah is a king of faith. In fact, Hezekiah is going to be one of the last good kings of Judah who places his faith in God and who eventually, as the Assyrians are looming down on Hezekiah, Hezekiah has this miraculous story in the book of Kings where he prays and seeks God's salvation while the Assyrians are at Jerusalem's gate. And somehow, strangely, magnificently, we're told that an angel of the Lord wiped out the army of Assyria. And we've seen this historically. Assyria got all the way to the gates of Jerusalem and then abandoned their campaign. And this is all under Hezekiah, the son born in chapter 7. Chapter 8, there's another son born. And most scholars think the son born in chapter 8 that Isaiah begins to talk about is Isaiah's own son. So it's almost like Isaiah is preaching to Ahaz and he says, uh, that the, word, the Lord gave him a word and said, tell them this sign of a child is a sign that I will not abandon them. And it's almost like Isaiah having his own son in the midst of this huge conflict is a sign to all of the people that are listening to his message. Hey, if I, a prophet of the Lord, am willing to bring new life into this contested, broken, stressful political situation then that surely is a sign to you. This son, every time you look at this son, is going to remind you God is not going to abandon the next generation. God has a plan for the children being born right now. Okay, so that's chapter 7, chapter 8. Uh, as much as those two sons seem to have some sort of historical parallel and sense, by the time we get to Isaiah 9, something seems a little bit different about this child, doesn't it? So this son seems, this child, seems to be a son that will have some sort of political significance. In fact, at first glance, when you read the beginning of this verse, you hear the son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. You begin to think, okay, so a new king is coming. Maybe this is Hezekiah, or maybe this is someone new who's going to come into the throne and who's going to be able to help save Israel. But as you keep reading, scholars scratch their head trying to explain away how anyone in Isaiah's day would have made sense about the names being attributed to this child that is going to be born. So the first one, wonderful counselor, which John did a great job teaching on last week, is a counselor who brings wonder, who opens up this sense of awe and possibility. That name seems fair, okay, that could be a king. But it's the second one that we're going to focus on this morning. Mighty God, this son on whose shoulders the government will be placed, is going to be called Mighty God. Seems just a little bit strange. The names continue. Uh, this son will also be called Everlasting Father, Father with no end, and Prince of Peace. Come back, join us these next two Sundays as we look at 
name number three, and name number four. But for this Sunday, why would mighty God be such a bold thing to proclaim that this son is going to be? I'm going to take you into this uh, name of God. I've got just a little bit more Bible trivia. You're all doing great. Uh, you're hanging with me. Um, I want you to learn some Hebrew with me this morning. The name Mighty God uh, for mighty is going to be this word El Gibor. Can you all say El Gibor with me? You ready? El Gibor. Great job. Let's do it one more time just for fun. You ready? El Gibor. Okay, great. So El Gibor is the Hebrew for mighty God. Uh, what's fun about this is that that term Gibor, uh, we, we uh, translate it in English to mighty uh, that, that kind of sounds great. It's like mighty, strong. You know, you've probably heard this before. You're like, yeah, mighty God. Uh, in Hebrew, it was a little more vivid that the Gibor was the name of the warriors who were most feared and renowned in any nation's army. So uh, with David, this is 2 Samuel 23, 8. You're going to find, if you've ever read about David, there's this famous list of the 30 mighty men of David. Do you ever recall seeing this? Uh, these mighty warriors are quite literally David's gibor. These are the mighty ones, the mighty warriors. The gibor were the special forces. They were the commando units. They were the navy seals. Uh, the gibor were anyone particularly courageous, particularly fast, particularly strong, particularly resilient. And so if we take this picture of the gibor and we offer it to God, uh, what you find is something like what Psalm 24.8 describes. Psalm 24.8 is going to majestically paint this picture where the psalmist says, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and gibor, the Lord strong and powerful, strong and mighty, strong and fearsome, the Lord mighty in battle. Now, I know at this point I may have lost you uh, for the same reason that uh, this sort of language often tends to lose me. I don't know about you, uh, but I haven't been in a fight uh, ever that I can recall. Um, I remember being in elementary school and I'd watch like cartoons or TV shows, and it always seemed like there was this threat at recess, like a fight was going to break out, and like every kid needed to be ready and prepared for a fight. And so I remember going into elementary school and genuinely thinking, like, oh, when the time comes, you know, I haven't really trained, I'm not really tested, uh, we're just going to have to see what happens. And then I was amazed to discover through elementary, junior high, high school, uh, I, I was around a few fights that would break out. First thing I always noticed, fights are always far less cool <laughs> in real life if you've ever seen them. Kids tend to be like swinging their arms kind of like this. They're, you know, kind of losing control. Um, but then I also just noticed like you don't get into a fight if you don't want to be in one, you know? They're like, all it takes is a, hey man, sorry. And like people wouldn't want to fight me. It was crazy. Um, now, while I'm not super familiar with battle, and that, of course, as I've already alluded, doesn't mean that, uh, that war still isn't taking place today, that war isn't very real. Um, and I think for that reason, it's helpful to just pause and notice our own distance, our own separatedness, like here in America, even in Chicago, where there's lots of gun violence and things go wrong a lot. Uh, there's a real sense that, like, most of us aren't near a battlefield. But imagine if you were in Isaiah's day, right? Imagine if you were the nation 
that heard the Assyrians were coming, if you were a person who even had seen the reliefs of what the Assyrians had done to other nations that they had invaded, imagine you're there in the royal court and Isaiah steps before the king and says, I have a word from the Lord. Unto you a son is going to be born. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Gibor, the warrior God who will be with us. Imagine how that might strike you a little bit differently. There's a sense, uh, even today, when you think about the struggles in your own life, when you think about the numerous problems so many of us are facing, from uh, addictions all the way to loneliness, to struggles with mental health, to broken relationships across all our different family systems and friendship systems. And you start to think about this term, mighty God, the God who is a warrior. Now, I don't think you need to apply all this violence to the term warrior in order to understand how beautiful a picture of a gibor might be in association with God, a God who is strong, a God who is resilient, a God who will persist for you, who will contend for you, who will even strive for the causes that matter to your life. What if God is actually a mighty God? What if God is a warrior who will not be intimidated or afraid by any contest you find yourself in? As I've been pondering that this week, I can't help but think there's something for us to recover in terms of the mighty warrior-ness of God. Yet, I want to be clear, the term gibor doesn't just mean warfare. In fact, one of the other uh, characteristics of gibor that I think are really helpful to unpack is that the gibor were often known not just for their strength or skill in combat, but for the character that they possessed as a warrior. And so the gibor that we see in Nehemiah 9.24, I think, builds out how the mightiness of God is related not just to his strength as a warrior, but to his character as a god. Uh, so here we see in Nehemiah 9.24, now therefore our God, the great the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. This is kind of a fun verse because it's jumping ahead a couple hundred years. This is after Israel has been exiled, uh, Judah has been exiled, and they've now come back. Nehemiah is praying this prayer. And he calls on the character of the mightiness of God. And you notice the things associated with might here. Uh, mightiness is a God who keeps his word. A God who keeps promises, who's faithful to a covenant. Uh, mightiness is a God who is steadfast in love. Doesn't it take quite a bit of mightiness to be steadfast in love, even in the midst of resistance, betrayals, disappointments? This is a God whose mightiness is just intimate presence to hardship. Do you notice that? Like Nehemiah's whole prayer is, God, just be close to us in the hard things we've endured. Just come be mighty in our midst with where we've been disappointed. If mightiness is the sort of strength in battle, if mightiness is goodness in character, mightiness also can be salvation itself. 
So you find this theme over and over and over again in the Old Testament whenever it talks about the mightiness of God. It often is calling upon God's might so that God could save you from some pending disaster. So here's Zephaniah 3.17. This is my last verse on mightiness. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. For God to be mighty, God needs to save us from the disasters we find ourselves in. Um, Over and over again, Israel finds itself in disaster. (laughs) I find this somewhat comforting, especially at Christmas time, especially with the mess that uh, we tend to make all over the place, from the mess that Chicago sometimes can be, to the mess that America can sometimes be, to just the mess globally that we seem to always perpetually be hearing about in our news cycles. Israel found themselves over and over and over again in trouble. Israel uh, struggled internally to just do basic things, to govern itself, to maintain a proper kingship, to, to keep the law that God had given Israel. Israel struggled in their worship. They constantly were pulled to the side. They were distracted. They started worshiping other gods. They started mixing and mingling and kind of having their identity and allegiances pulled in different directions. And then Israel just fought with itself. In fact, uh, this passage in Isaiah comes after Israel as a nation had split. The tribes had pulled in different directions. Divisiveness was rampant. And so here in the States, if, if Israel was in disaster, I think arguably we too could be said to be in a little bit of disaster. Um, just one heavy but important cultural moment we find ourselves in, as I was thinking about, what does it mean that God is mighty to save, that God could actually save us from something? Um, I've been fascinated the last couple years to do some reading about the opioid epidemic that's just been tearing the country apart. In fact, the statistic that got me as I was looking into it again is that in Illinois this year, the year 2023, twice as many people will die from opioid overdose than were killed in a car accident or were murdered uh, in Chicago, which obviously has such a high rate of gun violence. Uh, Twice as many people from those two combined. This is the thing that is killing people who live in Illinois more than almost anything else. And yet what's so fascinating about the opioid epidemic is that opioids themselves are meant to take away pain, right? They were a drug we created, something that we initially hoped would help someone feel relief from pain, but, but that sensation of being free from pain is so powerful and addictive that it's possible that if you don't manage this very, very carefully, uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in their pursuit of freeing themselves from pain are finding themselves killed by the very drug that they went to seek relief from. We are a people who need saving. I think that's, that to me is where we find ourselves at Christmas. Like, do you, do you need saving? Do you need saving from the stress of the world around us? Do you need saving from the anxiety of managing all these different news cycles and currents? Do you need saving from yourself? from that pain of existence that you find yourself living in day in, day out, those struggles, mental health, loneliness, otherwise. If you do, Isaiah has a word of comfort for you. 
he says, unto you a child is born and he will be called mighty God. This is a God who can save you. As we connect this to Christmas time, uh, I'm drawn just in those couple of reflections on what mightiness means to how, as mysterious as it was in Isaiah's day, and I, I do feel for the people in the royal court being like, okay, so could you point out the kid? Like, where's, where's the son? Like, could, he, could we just talk to him now? Like, is there a relationship we could begin with this son? Because we could really use some of that mighty godness right about now. Uh, that, in fact, Isaiah, even if he did not know, it was anticipating one who was to come who would be born in a manger. And tonight, we're going to hopefully uh, do quite a bit to help you enter into this story, into this moment that's going to take place thousands of years later, where with the same pressures, there's now a new empire, uh, things are still going wrong, Israel is still a mess, the disasters are still befalling them. Uh, into the same struggles, a child is going to come. And as we look closely at Jesus, you see Jesus has might that is able to contend, that is able to struggle. If you've ever read the Gospels closely, you notice Jesus has no problem entering into conflict. Conflict with others, conflict with authority, conflict with abusive systems and broken structures. Jesus enters in with a mightiness to the conflict he finds himself in. And yet the character of Jesus, the character of Jesus is so compelling, it's so good that over and over and over again, people throughout history have looked to Jesus and just seen a mightiness to him. Even if they don't believe his claims to divinity, they say, this man was surely a mighty one in our midst. But then finally, the salvation, is it possible? Is it possible that the child born at Christmas is in fact the very hope for your salvation? the hope to free you from your addictions, from your self-interest, from your pride, from your tendency to live out on your own, from your desire to sort of just take care of yourself and press out the world, and yet your aching loneliness looking around and asking, who cares, who would care enough to come be close to me in my struggles? Jesus is the mighty God who is born to us this Christmas day. So just a few closing thoughts for you. What difference this makes uh, in any of our lives. I first would just gently propose that a mighty God, if Jesus is in fact the mighty God in our midst, a mighty God does offer us hope. A mighty God reminds us that the strength and the power of God that was present in Isaiah's day, the miraculous interventions that took place across Isaiah's time that became so apparent in the life of Jesus, in his death and resurrection, and that ultimately spreads all the way to our future. We Christians, as the Apostle Paul says, are ones who live with hope because we have a resurrection. We have a mighty God who can conquer death itself. Um, I love that in Isaiah, if you ever find yourself able to push through, and I'll just fully confess to you, I feel like I need to close out this story. I didn't make it as a uh, high schooler trying to read through Isaiah. I think we got to like 17 and then we were done. So uh, if you make it further in Isaiah in your Bible reading plan, good to you. Uh, but if you can somehow get to Isaiah 40, 
There's this amazing moment in the prophecies of Isaiah, right? He's living in this contested day. There's all these things happening around him politically. Syria is pressing in. There's even this sort of threat of Babylon that's beginning to grow that's going to become a problem later. Isaiah all of a sudden turns at chapter 40, and it begins with these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. In Isaiah 40, the very next verse is going to say, one who is coming, who is going to prepare a way in the wilderness for you. This is where all of Jesus' story begins to flow. And it's this breathtaking moment in Isaiah where it's like Isaiah's reminders about the mightiness of God all of a sudden open up the horizons and he looks to the future and he says, Israel, comfort, comfort. God is a mighty one who will save you. Can you this Christmas hold on to that kind of hope? That comes from such a mighty God. Um, if God gives us a mighty hope, God also, I think, wants to offer us a mighty power. There is in the Apostle Paul, who's kind of like embodying and reflecting upon how the mightiness of Jesus is now being extended to those who are following Jesus. Uh, Paul is going to say this in Ephesians 1, 18 to 21. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul's essentially saying is, you should have hope because the power The power of the mighty God that raised this one from the dead, the mighty God in our midst, is the same power that God can and wants to offer to you. There is a mighty hope available in Jesus. There is a mighty power. Uh, But finally, finally, allow me to end here. There is finally a mighty humility that I think we particularly see in Jesus. And this is why the most captivating scene the most captivating image uh, outside of the cross when it comes to Christianity is this image of a manger. The sense that the mighty God, El Gibor, the warrior in our midst, the one of infinite strength, the God who can resist the Assyrians, the God who can turn the tables on Rome, the God who can defeat death itself, chooses to come as a baby, as a child, And instead of being born into royal robes or into palatial grandiosity, here Jesus lays in a manger. The mightiness of God is revealed in the the smallness and in the humility of a child. Uh, Tonight, would you join us as we continue this story? Would you join us as we continue to ponder what difference this child makes for you and for me. 